1: And my co-host is Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And all right, Sharon, we're back. Yes, we are. And here we are in the studio again today.
2: On a nice Saturday.
1: Beautiful fall Saturday at 92 degrees, I think, today.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's fall no, that in North fall. Carolina.
1: There you go. Well, we're we're happy to be back together recording today, and uh, we have one of our, our favorites in house today. But before we get started with her, what time is it, Sharon? It's time
2: to wake up, Jeremy. It is
1: time to wake up. So we want to educate everyone, as usual, and we have Sandy Ouellette with us in the studio today, and she's going to talk to us about Ronald Calk, who, after I read through your brief, Sandy, I, I realized seemed like pretty much a mentor and a very influential person for you and IFNA, so I'll be interested in learning more about that. But this this year marks the 30th anniversary and founding of IFNA, mm-hmm. and we've done a podcast about mm-hmm. that.
2: A few. Um,
1: Hermie Lohnert, and uh, I hope I said that right name, who was the founder of IFNA, and Ronald Calk were instrumental in in the formation and the early structure of of IFNA. So, Sandy, who was Ronald Calk, and what did he accomplish?
3: Well, you know, I see Ronald Calk, in addition to being a, a wonderful mentor and one of my best friends ever, I see him, when you put everything together, as an agent for global change. In terms of his early life and education, after I got to know him a little bit better. I found out he was from Iowa. He was uh, born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa. He went to nursing school in 1956. Now, we have to remember that not many men went to nursing school. We did not have many boy nurses. Especially back in 1956. And that was 1956. And uh, he went to uh, the Mercy Hospital in Des Moines. He, he was the first male student that they ever had enrolled in their nursing program. And he was the sole male, of course, among 60 classmates. You can see on his timeline, he had an eye for anesthesia when he headed to nursing. Because following graduation, you didn't have a lot that you had to do, no ICU, not, not all these things. And so he went straight into uh, an anesthesia program after his three-year diploma nursing program. And he, in, uh, he enrolled um, in the program at Mayo which is one of the prestigious, Mm -hmm. uh, longest-standing programs that we have in the United States. And one of the times I asked him, why Mayo? And he said, well, it had such a good reputation, and I knew I would have opportunities and experiences there that I wouldn't have elsewhere. And that he did. And so he graduated from Mayo Clinic, and he um, had his first job at Sacred Heart Hospital in Fort Madison, Iowa, But then for some reason, and I never did really find out, he moved to Arizona. And um, he became um, a director of nursing services and chief nurse anesthetist at a hospital there in Casa Grande, Arizona. And then his last position in Arizona as a staff nurse anesthetist at the Veterans Administration Hospital, he held that position for 12 years. And then later on, as we will see as we continue, his final years in anesthesia was in the Chicago area. He had moved back uh-huh. there with his wife. And so he, he was a very active clinician, but also a, a leader for us in the AANA.
2: Well, I'm sure he served as a leader at the state level, too. You want to tell us a little bit about maybe some of his state-level activity?
3: Yes, I don't know a lot about that, but I know that most of his association at the state was with the Arizona Association of Nurse Anestis. And And um, I know that he served as president in 1968. I also know that during that time, he was on some AA committees because he was chair of the bylaws committee. And, you know, Ron could have a short fuse Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the nicest way uh, (laughs) uh, to say it. And his wife Susan said, of all the years and of all the people, you're the one that could calm him down when things just weren't going his way like he thought it should more than anybody else. And. We had many, many years and many, many trips of calming down, But he was on the bylaws committee, and I remember those presentations, and it was heated, and I thought, who is this person? I mean, <laughs> he's like a firecracker, you know, up there. Um, but, you know, from his state association, we could probably move into some of his um, his and contributions. He served on many, many committees of the a and and um, he was elected president in 1977. And talking with Ron about if he could be here about the courage to lead and what were some of the accomplishments uh, in the year that you served as president, it's not known really by many people. He was responsible for the purchase of the first building for the ANA. Now we've we've been into several buildings since mm-hmm. that time, but who would have thought that we could buy our own building instead mm-hmm. of renting as we'd done on expensive Wacker Avenue for so long. But we did get our building and it was paid for. The members paid for it. And um it was during his term, too, that we voted in mandatory continuing education for nurse Prior to that time, it had been a voluntary process. And so with that, there was the establishment of the Council on Recertification. As our listeners remember, we already had the Council on Accreditation, the Council on Certification, and the Council on Practice, which was later changed to Public Interest. So this was the fourth council that came after those. The Council on Recertification, with the responsibility for credentialing of all nurse anesthetists in the U.S. regarding recertification, and so the person that was brought into the ANA office to take care of all the recertification and ultimately also certification was Susan Smith. Susan Smith was from Wayne State. They developed many, many leaders out of that program. John Gard was also at Wayne State before he came to a a office and and he uh, she came there and um, Susan and Smith and Ronald Colt worked very closely in terms of establishing the council on recertification and Before long, Susan Smith became. Susan Smith Calk.
2: So they were huh. very close. <laughs> <to them. laughs> yeah. So she was. Um,
3: they they were a good team in every way, and uh, so that's how he met her, and they married, and that's what brought him back, you know, from Arizona. After I'm seeing
2: that. a trend here.
3: Well, the anesthesia
1: he, association was very good to a lot of us. <laughs> but, uh, right. Yes, it was. Oh, you know, I mean, Sandy, Sandy got a husband.
3: I got, so, I got a husband. My
1: I husband. Got a wife. You know, yeah, my so. husband
3: came um, from Massachusetts to North Carolina. You know, it takes mm-hmm. some some uh, <laughs> movement and so on, but it does happen. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, um, they were a good couple, and um, they got this going very, very well. Now, he began the collaboration with a European nurse anesthetist to discuss the formation of an international organization after that. But it was during his year in 1977 as president that Hermie Leonard from Switzerland and Hans Fronson from Norway attended our meeting, and they got to know each other. And so it was a number of years later that the International Federation was formed, but it, it certainly began there. Once he moved to Chicago and he had finished his uh, his work as a president he served as a clinical anesthetist at Columbus Medical Center his real interest was in neurosurgical anesthesia and management uh, so he, he did that and he continued to work on committees and one that I remember was that he co-chaired the liaison committee between the ANA and the ASA when we actually had a liaison committee and hmm. we did sit down and talk for a few hours once a year. But anyway, that was a little bit about his um, involvement in his state and AINA.
1: Well, Sandy, obviously he played a role in IFNA, and you became involved with Ron how?
3: All right, well, see, I had been involved with both of them because I came on the board of directors about 1984, 85 of the ai and And um, so I was on committees, and I was working, you know, particularly with Susan. I was on one of the first councils on recertification and some committee members uh, meetings, uh, other committee appointments and so on. But I really, really began to work with Ron Moore when there was this idea about globalization of the profession and um, the formation of the IFNA. And as I previously mentioned, those two European nurse anesthetists came to our ANA meeting, and they had their eyes opened, and they saw you know, what a mature organization on the move for nurse anesthetists could do and could be, and they wanted that for their own countries. And I think we heard that again. It's not changed in 30 years, because when we did the podcast in Chicago, and we had our representative from Korea, Mm -hmm. from Sweden, and Slovenia, we heard the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, they depend on IF&A, but they also depend on AANA and what we're doing and where we're going. So we leave a big footprint across the world. But anyway, that's how it all started. So he and Hermie became fast friends, and they began to talk about the possibility of having a joint meeting or a symposium internationally. So Ron was appointed by ANA to serve as the the organization's representative to the planning committee for that first international symposium uh, held in Lucerne, Switzerland in 1985. And we've talked many times about what great fun it was, but it was not very stabilizing financially at that, but a lot was learned from that. Mm. And during that time, I was president-elect, and then we had another, know, well, it was the next symposium in 1988 in Amsterdam. I attended as president-elect, and it was the next year when I was president of ANA that we, we met and founded the IFNA. And during that time, the ANA board had decided, because we really didn't know, how to do an international organization so ron and i had many many talks about it but the board decided to send ron and myself to the icn meeting in seoul korea at that particular time and our total purpose was to meet people on the on the world stage and to figure out you know, how should this be? And we did that. We went to Seoul, Korea, and from there to Teufel, Switzerland, and that's where it was founded, in June 10th, 1989. And um, it was founded with Ron as a founding member and the first vice president. I was there as ANA president at the time, but I very quickly was appointed well, I was appointed at that time to the Education Committee. And by 1982, I chaired the Education Committee for IFNA and did that for 12 to 14 years before I became the representative myself. And so Ron and I worked very, very closely with all the things that needed to be done for this uh, young uh, global organization. So um, he became the president of IFNA in 1990, And he held that position until 1995. And at that time, he was appointed to be the first IFNA executive director. And so a plan was worked out between the AINA and IFNA. It was a full time paid position. Mm-hmm. And so then he had an office in the AINA building and he was the first um, executive director of IFNA. And so that became his full time job. And he, he did that until his retirement from IFNA in 2004. And um, so he traveled extensively for both the ANA and IFNA, and Ron lectured in many, many places, and his heart really was in the um, the formation of this organization and making sure that nurse anesthetists were recognized, you know, for the role they play in the countries in which they work. And we heard recently, you know, the, the problem continues to be Nurses are administering anesthesia in more than probably 107 countries, but they're not recognized. And they're asking for that voice and for that authority that comes with a formal recognition. In their, and we heard that with mm-hmm. the joint uh, meeting we had with our international colleagues just a couple of months ago. He always liked to tell stories. And I remember one of his most memorable experiences was at the school in Ghana. He and Hermie went to Ghana and, and visited the association and also the school. He brought textbooks as a gift, and he said it was just like gold to him. It was so surprising to him that prior to his arrival, they had only one textbook for the entire school. Now, that was before everything was electronic and everything, mm-hmm. but that's all they had. And so that it prompted him to establish a used book donation system which sent much-needed textbooks to Israel and Palestine and Cambodia and many, many African countries. And so that was a start, and I'm very glad now, and I'll have to give a shout-out to uh, Jackie Rolls who started the foundation, Our Hearts to Your Hands. And I know that you people are kind enough to donate and to support that in every way. And so this is doing the same thing in a more formal structure. I have um, the opportunity to serve on her board along with Kay Saunders from Texas and Susan Calk from uh, Arizona and Betty Horton from Illinois. And so uh, we're raising money. And she's given me a whole box of little cards I'm going to take to mm-hmm. our state meeting and hand out. And we've just agreed to fund some projects, some African people that are struggling to get money to finish a master's degree, one in a country that just needs $600 for a laptop so she can continue her studies, and these types of things. And the need is great. And so we're we're making a little footprint along that way through her foundation.
2: We run her ad after every single podcast that she taped whenever we first started and she's got some donors from that actually um that do a monthly donation and i
3: believe you guys donate from what i understand you know we we have a meeting every six months and you you two also support which is is very good and um because it goes a long way
2: uh, that's what's so striking six hundred dollars can change somebody's yeah. a life.
3: life it can change, the world. It can change yeah. a life yes yeah. and that life can change a country
0: oh yeah
3: and those countries can change the world it's another yeah. sandyism yeah
0: I, yeah I was
2: thinking exactly the same <laughs> yeah. thing well tell us about some of his recognitions and contributions to the aana and to the ifna
3: well you can see that he was a, he was a powerful person and he accomplished so much in his, his lifetime. And he was recognized for some of those accomplishments. In 1992, he received the AANA Agatha Hodgins Award for Outstanding Accomplishments. That is recognized as the uh, the highest recognition given to a nurse anesthetist in our profession. And uh, very important, I think, in 1999, he was introduced into the American Academy of Nursing. Now. That was pretty spectacular, as it was for me when I was introduced several years prior to that into the American Academy of Nursing. Now, for our listeners who may not know what, what that is, it is um, is something associated with the American Nurses Association. Uh, you have to be nominated, and you have to have a sponsor, and they, they restrict how many people that they will elect to become a member of the American Academy of Nurses. And these people are designated by FAA in, after their name, Fan, Fellow of the American Academy of Nurses. Well, of course, our Gunn was one, and she was, uh, before her death, made a living legend of the academy, which is the only nurse anesthetist that's ever uh, had that honor. John Gard, of course, they loved him to death at the academy, as they did throughout nursing. But here was Ron and myself, and what made it so special for Ron, as well as myself, neither one of us had a degree in nursing. You know, my degree was in education and biology. Almost no one in the American Academy of Nursing doesn't have a PhD with a strong background Mm -hmm. in nursing. And so when I wanted to nominate Ron, I was encouraged not to, because it was told to me he will never be elected i said look at what he's done he started this international community and so we did it and he was and it had a lot to do with all of his international work i Mm -hmm. think and so uh, that was in 1999 in 2000 he received um, a distinguished alumni award from uh, mercy college in des moines uh, his uh, nursing program and in 2002 he was one of the very early recipients of the IFNA Hermie Leonard Award for outstanding contributions to nurse anesthesia internationally. And then it all comes back to where it all started. So in 2011, uh, the Mayo School of Anesthesia Sciences Alumni Association recognized Ron for his outstanding contributions. And it's been so meaningful for me To have spent so many years with not only ron but also with his uh, lovely wife susan dearest friend that i hope is coming to visit me before too long but at any rate we traveled not only around the world together but we had many many vacations you know and have had many trips together including many that were associated with ifna and when I first met them, now that was uh, Sharon. You may remember this. It was back in about the mid '80s. I think I might have been president of the North Carolina Association of Nurse at that time, and our meeting was held in Greensboro at what is now uh, as what is now the Corey Convention Center. Do you remember that?
2: Um, that's the night that my husband met Chow.
3: That's right. So what happened then is I wanted a big dance and a good band and a lot of fun so we contracted with the embers the oh, wow. beach music embers why mr pierce was and there. that's why, why uh pierce was there and um So anyway, it was so much fun, and then we decided to show them my part of the world, what I consider paradise, and so we took them from that to to several days on the outer banks of North Carolina, and my husband then, Chow Marie, had this Jeep, four-wheel drive. We were kind of crazy back then. We used to like to drive on the beach and as close Mm -hmm. to the water as we could, and we'd be out there (laughs) fishing on the surf all day and deep-sea fishing when we could, and so anyway, we were out there, and we got the Jeep stuck. I mean, I mean it, it was really stuck. And they were in the back seat and we didn't know them very well, and they were they were so quiet. And my husband got mad because he couldn't get it out. Mm. And the madder he got, the more he stepped on the accelerator. And the, and the, the more sand that flew everywhere. <laughs> so finally, I said, I think you need to cut it off. We need to see what this looks like. When we stepped out of that Jeep that had big, big tires on it, we were sitting on the ground. Oh, he had buried it so bad. And Susan, I didn't know at the time, was telling Ron, take a picture, take a picture. And he was saying, are you kidding? He said, I wouldn't dare take a picture as mad as he is. And so what happened there with that little little thing, I said, well, we got to get somebody to pull us out. And at that time, the Coast Guard was not being very good about pulling people out like that. I said, Well, I'll just walk up to the Coast Guard station and see see what I can do. So I walked up there and this young little boy looked at me and he said, All right, I said, My our car's stuck on the beach. He says, Is it in danger of tide? I said, Not now, but when it's high tide, we can open the doors and it's going to go right through it. I said, we're really in trouble and we need your help. All right, what's your address? So I gave him 241 Placid Street, Western Salem, North Carolina. He said... Oh, my parents live right across the street. Oh, not right across the street, but around the corner on the next street over in Gordon (laughs) Manor. And all of a sudden, Sharon, it's what you say. It's about contacts and it's about networking. Because all of a sudden, he was my best buddy. He could (laughs) not um, be fast enough to get that winch and pull us out. And Ron called his first blue marlin. Mm, That was nice. And then we got into a school of uh, yellowfin tuna. Uh, We uh, had six strikes. We had one on six poles. We got five to the boat. They weighed 50 and 60 and 70 pounds each. And Ron kept saying he thought he had a marlin on every line. (laughs) And uh, I made him climb the Cape Hatteras lighthouse, which is the tallest lighthouse in the world, and he said, that he did it once, and he's going to need assistance getting to his plane when we took him back. And my late husband, Charles, said, and I'm telling you this, you can bring anybody you want down here, but I am not climbing that Agum Lighthouse one more time. I've done it my last time. So uh, that was sort of some, some fun stories, but, um, but he, he was uh, really a, a great person. And I think it's good to pause and to thank him. You know, of course, he passed away a few years ago. It was a big loss. And, again, like John Gard, I think about him every day and some of the wonderful times we had in stories.
2: Yeah. Um, he was in – I had the – whenever I was president, you have the past presidents come up to your suite, mm-hmm. and that was the last time that I had the mm-hmm. opportunity mm-hmm. to talk to him. He came up to the suite. He was actually uh, – got a little bit of the – hot i guess that you were talking yeah. about early he was he he needed to chat with me about an issue yeah. so he
3: was very enthusiastic and mm-hmm. very and very focused on what he wanted and, and most of all he was really a very good man yes that wanted the best for absolutely not, for not only ana but for
2: ifna absolutely um so tell us how will he be remembered
3: I think uh, Ron is going to be remembered as a man of great vision and commitment who certainly was in the right place at the right time. You have to think sometimes, whether it's about, you know, mine and Dick's marriage and how things worked out, things just don't happen. John Gard used to say, it's in the fates. All the stars have to align at the right time for things to happen. And it did with him and Hermie and where we went with that. He was clearly a dear friend and mentor for me in many ways, as I assumed, greater roles in the IFNA. And even throughout my presidency from 2004 into 2010, he he was always there, and he always had a good suggestion for any problems we had. The 30th anniversary history book Of IFNA is coming to completion. I'm serving with um, Betty Horton and Jackie Rawls as co-editors of this book. It's going to have I don't know how many. We're still rearranging the chapter some, but it could have as many as 15 or more chapters in it. And it should be ready for publication and to hand off to IFNA next year. And this book has been dedicated to the memory of Ronald Hawk, as it should be. And our task force for this project consists of Susan Koch, Hermie Leonard, Pascal Rod, who's our executive director now from France, Betty Horton, Jackie Rolls, and myself. So there's six of us on the task force. We started this in 2017. Mm -hmm. So we've come a long way Mm -hmm. to get this much done on this book. And I do believe it's going to be done. It'll be finished next year. We're having conference calls monthly now, just hassling the people that have got gotten their up. stuff right, in, and uh, <laughs> so we get a new battle plan every month <laughs> when we figure out what we're missing but uh, that's going to be a great addition to nurse anesthesia history yes. I think
2: mm-hmm. I agree
1: well Sandy that's great obviously he was uh, a great friend to you and wonderful mentor and you, you speak about him in such a way that that is obvious to at least us and I'm mm-hmm. sure our listeners as well so Ronald Cog. Well, Sharon, I think that's uh, a wrap.
2: I believe it is. Yeah,
1: we want to thank Sandy for being here again. Well, and, thank you for
2: having
3: me. Absolutely. I feel like I'm wearing out my welcome.
1: You are not. No, we are learning. Sandy from gives your us wisdom. ideas all the time, <laughs> and uh, our Sandyisms are the best ones, though. I think <laughs> I, you know, I find myself repeating in my head uh, what Sandy says sometimes. So, not only for nurse anesthesia, but for life. So yeah. that's that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley and
2: Sharon Pierce. If you
1: like our show and you want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Make sure and hit that subscribe button for mm-hmm. us. Leave us some feedback, but only if it's positive. No negative reviews out there. Until next time.
2: It's a wrap.
0: Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning. An independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304